Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we assess the election campaign so far. Is it just an egg-throwing contest or has there been a lot more to it? And we make our final predictions and observations for the election results on Saturday night. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, bringing you all the gossip from Hollywood. It's been a strange fortnight in the federal election campaign. We've had rolling eggs make an appearance, the Prime Minister calling out bingo numbers, the opposition leader in tears, and we've had two campaign launches as well. There's been a role reversal in this campaign where the Labor opposition looks more like a government and the Liberal National Government looks more like an opposition. And it's not by accident. Labor wants to present itself as a government in waiting, while the LNP wants to look low frills and present itself as people that don't want to make a song or dance about themselves. But elections are all about song and dance. And as Paul Keating once said, politicians need to turn the switch to vaudeville to mix it up a bit. We haven't yet seen the monkey in the organ grinder make an appearance, but Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten have played to their relative strengths in this campaign and tried to do their very best to extract every single vote from the electorate. Who has had the better campaign so far? There have been interesting campaigns in terms of gaff-free. You'd have to give it to, to the Labor Party. I don't think they've run a brilliant campaign, but I don't think they've they've run a very capable campaign. There's been the right mix of focusing on the direction of the policies, focusing on some of the personalities, focusing on the strengths that they bring, letting the government demonstrate their own weaknesses. I think the government itself has not had a great campaign. Both Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison have performed quite well, but when you look at the overall campaigns, Labor does seem to have a lot more substance than the than the Coalition does, and a lot more doer seems to be lacking energy. And I noticed that the Liberal National Campaign launch on Sunday seemed to be talking more about the profile of Scott Morrison and his wife Jenny. Now that might be okay for daytime television or more like an evangelist type of Christian session, but it's supposed to be about who forms government. The Liberal campaign just seemed to be coming across more like a lead balloon. And log cabin conversations, they can make it within politics, but it's more about developing the personality of a leader once they get into office, not when they're trying to win an election campaign. And I don't think this will quite cut it. This is an election that preferences are going to matter, and I think the Liberal Party have realised that. There's been pictures and reports of Liberal campaigns handing out One Nation and United Australia Party pamphlets in an attempt, I think, to, particularly in marginal seats, swing the preferences. I don't think it's in the bag for Labor as much as people say it is. I'm hoping to be wrong because, not because I think the Liberal Party is made up of awful people, although there are clearly awful people in it. They're also very decent grassroots members who genuinely want the best for Australia. But the Liberal Party needs to reform. It needs to restructure. It needs to move away from its more destructive tendencies. And I guess we did see a lot of those destructive tendencies last year when Scott Morrison replaced Malcolm Turnbull as the Prime Minister. This has caused a few problems during this campaign where they haven't really been able to talk about the past. If we notice that the Liberal National campaign launch last Sunday, 
there were no illuminaries from the Liberal Party. There was no John Howard. There was no Tony Abbott. There was no Malcolm Turnbull, of course. And Scott Morrison is still presenting himself as the solo man, and that's fine if you want to run a campaign like that. But it's very similar to the 2016 campaign from the Liberal National Party, where it was all about Malcolm Turnbull. The bigger issue is that in politics, if you can't talk about the past, you can't talk about the future. And my perception of that is that it's caused Scott Morrison and the LNP to be hamstrung by this whole process of not being able to talk about their past. If you're not confident about the past, you're not confident about your own future. One of the issues they have, of course, is that what is their legacy? He had this very infamous saying where he said, we've delivered a budget next year, mixing his tenses in a way that an ad man certainly shouldn't do. You struggle to look at a major legacy that they can say, well, we did this. The economy is worse. House prices are dropping. Now, this in itself isn't a bad thing. Property is a long-term investment. So house prices dropping just means more people can get in. That's a good thing, I would have thought. But they've set it up because they want the narrative of never-ending growth. And, of course, there are a lot of people who are very worried about their falling property values. It's another promise that they've not delivered on. Our foreign relations are in a mess. Now, to be fair, that's not just the fault of the government. There's all kinds of things going overseas that are out of the control of the government. But there is a sense in which you make your own luck. Now, it seems like a very, very long time ago, but Labor also had their campaign launch a week before the Liberal National campaign launch. They released their costings, and they're quite substantial costings, especially when you compare it with what's been released in the past by opposition parties. But they released their substantial costings analysis, and they actually claim that there will be a $17 billion surplus over the next four years. Election figures and costings are quite rubbery. When you're looking at estimates for the next 12 months, well, there's a lot of things that go into estimating that actual number. But when you're looking at four years, there's all sorts of factors that come into this, like what is the world economy going to be like? Is there going to be climate change issues that will affect this consumer sentiment? There's a whole range of factors that will affect whether you've got a surplus or not. And also during the week, it's, it's not really an election campaign unless you've got some sort of object or missile that's being thrown at, at the political leaders. And last week we had the egg throwing incident where Scott Morrison was at the Country Women's Association in Albury and a protester rolled an egg on the side of his head. It's not good for anyone to throw anything at a political leader, but it seemed to be quite an innocuous incident. The last incident that we had concerning eggs was Julia Gillard when an egg was thrown at her in the 2010 election campaign. She laughed that off. The media thought that it was a bit of a joke. But this time around, Scott Morrison has almost called a national emergency. So there has been a history of egg throwing at political leaders in the past. Did Scott Morrison make too much of an issue out of this? After the Fraser Anning incident, you'd think the Prime Minister would want to distance himself from, well, Fraser Anning and that bunch of thugs. Instead, the secret police raced in. They knocked over an old lady in their haste to get this 24-year-old tattooed green. The media was very sure in saying that, you know, she was tattooed and associated with the Greens. She was then charged Now, I know technically she has broken the law and this type of thing achieves nothing. It was said of the Rolling Stones when they were arrested for drug possession, a far more serious crime, although she was arrested for cannabis possession anyway. Who breaks a butterfly on a wheel? 
it is an act of insecurity. If you can't laugh off an egg, sure, have her escorted out of the building. That's what, maybe give her a warning. But to charge her, she's probably looking at a, a fine. I don't know that she'll go to jail for it, but she might. Certainly looking down the barrel of that. Well, the first major egg-throwing incident occurred with Prime Minister Billy Hughes. This is back in 1917. Now, of course, I was not there, but the egg did not actually hit Billy Hughes. It just knocked off his hat. He wanted to, he was actually so furious that he wanted to kill the person that threw the egg. And he actually had a gun in his pocket, but it didn't come out in time. So the, the person that threw the egg managed to run away. It was this incident that led to the formation of the Commonwealth Police, which is the modern-day Australian Federal Police. So that's how seriously Billy Hughes took the egg-throwing incident. But most other Prime Ministers have laughed it off. Robert Menzies, Bob Hawke, Julia Gillard. In the 1993 election campaign, John Hewson, he was the opposition leader at that time, he actually managed to catch an egg that was thrown at him on the stage. These are not major incidents. People shouldn't throw things at politicians, but when these sort of issues do happen, they should be played down. But Scott Morrison did the opposite to that. He tried to make a national emergency out of this, and it would have been better just to let it flow. Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister, it's either Wilson or Heath, when they got an egg thrown at him, and he said, look, just goes to show how cheap eggs are under our government. Well, you do have to have the correct riposte to that sort of incident. And it's neither here nor there. It wasn't such a massive factor. But of course, Scott Morrison used it as a political opportunity to rail against unionism, to rail against green activism. There are all these other issues that he brought into it. And on that same trip, he ended up in Nowra and started playing a bit of bingo as well. I'm not sure what, what sort of audience these images are playing to, but he actually went to two bingo halls on the same day. It made Scott Morrison look a little bit like a local mayor rather than a prime minister. And it's almost like he's, he hasn't got much to say except call out bingo numbers on the south coast. And, and I think there was a bit of a wrong call on that one. He's not a terribly substantial figure. Let's be fair. He's not a deep intellect. He's not a sharp thinker. Now, nothing wrong with bingo, of course. A lot of people enjoy it. It's a great social day out, etc., etc. I'm not going to laugh at the idea of people going out and enjoying themselves. But I was reminded of John Howard and his response to going on Rove Live. And he refused to go on Rove Live. Rove McManus continually asked, continually asked, continually asked. And it finally came out that John Howard realised there wasn't a vote in it for him. As a result, why would he waste his time campaigning on a show in which those who were watching had made up their minds, probably weren't going to vote for him anyway, where he could be out you know, winning votes in, in other areas? Kevin Rudd, he went on and he probably did swing a few wavering voters his way. But I wouldn't have thought there would be much in doing bingo. I, if you're a radical Green or Xenophon party against gambling, and bingo is a form of gentle gambling, you're not going to say, oh, there he is, oh, playing bingo, I, I like him now. The picture of him at church, I thought, was a very strange choice to make. Again, it's not about going to church. Bill Shorten went to church on the same day. But to allow the press in and to show him with his hands up, I think probably cost more votes than gained them. Well, he might have lost some votes there, but I'm certainly sure that he's got the bingo vote all sewn up.
My mum was a brilliant woman. She wasn't bitter. She worked here for 35 years. But I also know that if she had had other opportunities, she could have done anything. I can't make it right for my mum. And she wouldn't want me to. But my point is this. What motivates me? If you really want to know who Bill Shorten is, I can't make it right for my mum, but I can make it right for everyone else. We did have a, an incident with the media last week, and it was on Bill Shorten. And the Daily Telegraph, that's a news-limited publication, which comes from the Murdoch stable, they decided that it was best to do a media hatchet job on Bill Shorten. They decided that they should attack Bill Shorten for not providing as much information as possible on his mother, Anne Shorten. And it seemed to backfire on both the Daily Telegraph, the Murdoch Empire, and also backfired a little bit on the Liberal National Party as well. Mothers are off limits. It's that simple. I don't know who in the party thought it would be a good idea to, to attack Bill's mother. And I'd be just as outraged and perplexed as if someone attacked Scott Morrison's mother. All bets are off if your mother is a prominent political figure and enters into a debate and then is open to the same amount of scrutiny, etc., that any other public figure is. That's not the case of anybody's in-parliament mother that I can think of at the moment. Quentin Bryce was Bill Shorten's mother-in-law. She's no longer in the public eye. It's just a very strange decision, like going after prime minister's wives. If you enter into the debate, you are liable to the same public criticism as anybody else. But Chloe Shorten and Jenny Morrison, while they are not actually entering into anything, are completely off limits as are their children, as are their fathers, as are uncles and aunties, unless there is some matter of genuine public interest. And Bill Shorten's mother putting off her career and then later becoming a lawyer isn't really in the public interest in the way that it was tried to be displayed. I just don't understand. And the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, they are two former Fairfax publications that are now part of the Nine stable. Now, they were actually attacking Chloe Shorten for not being so accessible to the media. I can't actually remember her name being on a ballot paper anywhere, but conservative media have decided that anything is fair game. As you mentioned, families should be off limits unless they're running for politics and they are entering the, the campaign. It does reek of desperation from the conservative side of politics. Certainly the media in Australia prefers liberal governments or, or non-Labor governments. That's well documented. It's pretty much admitted by the players involved. And there's a whole range of historical reasons for this. Occasionally, of course, they'll go the other way. They haven't quite embraced Bill Shorten, which is where I think the narrative of Bill is unpopular comes from. I think Bill is unpopular among media owners. I think it's much more subtle and nuanced outside of that rather small bubble. The current government is much more in line with the thinking of big business, particularly in its views on how tax should be collected and how much tax should be collected and where that tax should go. But on that issue of Bill Shorten being unpopular, you're certainly right. Like there, He's not very popular amongst media owners and barons. And, of course, if you, the electorate is being told for, well, for so many years, it's almost six years now, that someone is so unpopular, of course they'll start understanding that to be true. And... That's why his entire strategy has been based around setting up a team behind him. It's not just all about him. 
And when you look at the overall team, there's got there's quite a few talented people there. But when you compare that with the Scott Morrison campaign, where there's pretty much no one there, and mind you, Scott Morrison isn't as popular as people like to think he is. In no, and Bill Shorten is campaigning, I think, on a knock on every door, speak to everybody, or speak to as many people as he can. The town hall meetings, which apparently he does very, very well in, and people walk away and they've changed their mind about him. His appearances on shows such as Q&A have swung people, I think. His willingness to show that he is a chairman rather than a micromanaging CEO. We've had probably five or six prime ministers who have micromanaged in the last few years. Kevin Rudd was notorious for it. Malcolm Turnbull was notorious for it. Tony Abbott thought he did it. And Scott Morrison is notorious for it as well trouble with being a micromanager is that you have to be good at everything. You have to not trust your team enough. Bill has not come across this way, and I think these little things could be a factor. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at the final countdown to the 2019 election. It's the final countdown. Now into the final days of the election campaign and the opinion polls are still pointing towards a Labor election victory. But as we know, it's not over until the polling booths close at 6pm on Saturday night and the Electoral Commission starts counting the votes. The media is still talking about the campaign lacking inspiration and something that we all have to endure rather than enjoy, but I've got a different perspective on this. This is potentially a change election and when the government changes, Australia changes as well. But the final week has also got potential for dramas and missteps, as we found out in the recent New South Wales election, where video recordings of racist comments from Labor leader Michael Daly entered the campaign on the final Tuesday, and he never quite recovered from that. Are we likely to see any last-minute dramas in the final week of this campaign? We're almost certainly. I suspect that somewhere is a very dubious claim of some kind of financial indiscretion or some kind of sexual indiscretion that may or may not have happened. They tried to have some worker sacked for criticising Bill Shorten Dewey's face, somehow blaming the union for this, without the employer being able to stand in and defend the freedom of speech of their employee. It was a rather bizarre thing, and I suspect there's a lot more to the story if it indeed happened in the way that it was said to, to have happened. They are throwing everything at Bill Shorten. Now, he's outlasted three prime ministers, which is quite remarkable. He has remained consistent. There's been a surprising lack of scandal from that side of politics. There's not many leaks. The leaks that come out are overwhelmingly positive, which suggests that they're controlled leaks rather than destabilizing leaks. The other side leak like a sieve. I guess one other factor is that if there are no scandals to report on, well, one can be invented. There's always something that appears in the final week of the campaign from, from all sides of politics. And 
With Bill Shorten, every negative sentiment has been thrown at him over the past six years, by the, pretty much by the conservative media. And, and I think that if there was something big that they could report on, it probably would have been used in the 2016 campaign. Now, there are rumours of News Limited planning to publish something damning about Shorten this week, but they do that every single week. So I'm still not sure what that could be. As I said before, if there is no scandal, one can be manufactured. Once all of these issues are reported and put out there in the media, it takes a few weeks for the truth to catch up with that. You can release your findings or what actually did happen a couple of weeks after the election campaign. But if that swings the election, it's too late by then. The thing is, too, 2.6 million people have already voted. There are 15.7 million enrolled voters in Australia. That means 15.5 or 16% of people have already made up their mind. And even if something comes out this week, they can't change their mind. Looking at the evidence, people have, one, made up their mind. Two, it might suggest that they want change. Because if you didn't want change, you just wait till election day. Three, 15% is a rather large sample size. Now, we don't know what people have voted yet. I suspect that we're seeing the swings starting to happen. Well, pre-polling did commence two weeks ago. By the time Election Day arrives on Saturday, there will have been three weeks of pre-polling available to the electorate. There's estimates that around between 35 and 40% of the electorate will have voted by the time Election Day starts. You did mention that there's around 15, 16% of people that have already voted. There'll be a lot more that will pre-poll up until Friday 6pm. So that's a large section of the electorate that will have completed their vote before the day. I think it's great that we have pre-polling. I think that even though vote, voting is compulsory, any means to get people to vote, uh, to get the best results most reflective of the will of the people of the Commonwealth of Australia is important. I look at countries like the US, there's only seven with compulsory voting. Theresa May, for example, got in on 22% of adult suffrage, even though everybody over the age of 18, if you factor that in, it's, she's only on 22% of that. That's not anywhere near democratic. Same with Donald Trump, same with Barack Obama and Tony Blair. It's ridiculous. Australia's got one of the very best voting systems in the world. Well, it does mean that we end up getting around 90% of eligible voters actually casting a vote, and it's a very good reflection of what the, what the overall electorate is after in their political processes. The right have this notion that compulsory voting favours the left, and I'm not quite sure how that works because we've had far more right-wing governments than, or nominally right-wing governments than nominally left-wing governments. Those arguments can be dismissed. And you know, even though it might not be the way we want it to go, we can say that's what the people wanted at the time. All the polls and the betting markets are pointing towards a, a Labor victory on Saturday. The betting market itself is not reliable, but it means something. Polling is a, tends to be a little bit more reliable than, than the betting markets, but for both of them, for both opinion polls and betting markets, they're absolutely fantastic as far as 
predicting the past, but they're not so good at predicting the future. So there's still a lot of things that can happen during this week. There will be a collection of polls this week from Essential, from Galaxy, Morgan, and there will be a final one from NewsPoll on Election Day. NewsPoll is fairly reliable with the ones that come out on Election Day. So this is these are the final polls that they place their reputation on. So they'll do their best to minimise margins of errors and they'll use the correct rounding up figures. They can't really stuff around with these ones. So it will be the final polls that give us a, a much better indication of what will actually happen on the day. But usually by the Thursday night before Election Day itself, both parties have got a good idea about whether they'll be winning the election or losing the election. Apparently, they've um, given up on the seat of Warringah. They've given up on the seat of Dixon. They've given up on a couple of other seats. And, and the Liberal Party are throwing their resources into seats that they think they can win. The fight for Kuyong going to be very tight. A couple of other seats are going to be very tight. Uh, New England is looking tighter than it did with Blakester, the independent candidate there. Rob Oakshaw might take uh, his seat. Karen Phelps, I think, will win again. Uh, maybe not by as much as she did, but I think that the people of Wentworth will allow her to continue her term, giving her a chance to settle into the job. Having said that, the Senate is a mess. It seems to me that there were a lot more right-leaning parties and independents than left-leaning parties and independents, which means that preference flows can change things in all kinds of ways. Yeah, the Senate in New South Wales anyway is a total mess. It's said that the Liberal Party are concentrating on the Senate to get control there so they can just continue the Tony Abbott strategy of not letting anything pass and driving the lower house into chaos. In the lower house, there are 151 seats up for grabs. We look at the general election campaign and we see the leaders of the respective political parties out there, but we tend to forget that it's essentially 151 little elections that are happening in each of those 151 seats. And it gets down to the relative merits between the candidates in that particular seat. So sometimes you might have a great candidate, but their campaign has not worked out so well. A candidate that's likely to win, something happens to them in the final week, which we miss in the national media. Their leaflets might not be dropped at the right time. There might be an error on their how-to-vote card. There's all of these different things that happen in those individual seats. And that, that's why there's usually quite a few surprises on election night. The seats that we expect to be gained or lost don't end up going that way. So there's always some, some strange things that do happen individually in all of those 151 seats. It does get down to the relative merits between those respective campaigns, how well each candidate is doing in every single seat around Australia. One of the flaws with somebody like Anthony Green, and I don't want to, he does an outstanding job, but local issues. I think it was Tip O'Neill who said, all politics is local. Something that's happening in a in a seat that has not reached out the boundaries of that seat could see a popular liberal member or independent returned against a swing. That only needs to happen six times across Australia. Suddenly there's a whole different result. And same with Labor. There could be a very popular Labor member who, who gets in not because the seat particularly likes the Labor Party but likes that lo local member. 
and you know and it could be as something as simple as a pedestrian crossing that went in at the right place at the right time or a building development that was stopped or a, a hospital visit <laughs> and no pundit can really keep their eye on the the micro details of 150 seats and there are so many things that can happen on the ground. There's different newspapers, for example. There's community newspapers. There's community radio that affects individual seats as well. There's so many, and there's social media that comes into effect as well. Every candidate pretty much around Australia would have their own Facebook page, their own Twitter account. There's all this media that's going out there. It's very hard to keep a track on all of that. The Senate, as you mentioned, that's going to be a messy affair. If the LNP wins government, they haven't actually presented that much during this campaign. Campaign. So their idea of what a mandate is will be a lot more malleable. They'll be able to present whatever they want after the election. The Labor Party, it's had more of a specific agenda. It's got details about the negative gearing policy, the franking credits, which the media loves to talk about all the time. So they've got specific policy announcements that they've made during the campaign. It will be very difficult for an incoming Senate irrespective of how it's made up, to block all of those policy matters that the Labor Party wants to introduce. Labor has used its opposition time well in terms of building and restructuring and thinking and listening and the Liberal Party tend not to use it well and this is how you end up where it is. And I said it earlier, it needs a period of reflection, it needs a period of cleaning out some of the dead wood. It's possible. They say Tony Abbott's gone, they say Peter Dutton's gone. We won't know, of course, till the night. But removing some of these older, less representative members, it might be argued, will help the Liberal Party. There's a sense in which Labor should be doing much better too. I'm not prepared to call it a landslide for Labor just yet, just because I know how the preferences might go. I know some people are calling it a landslide that they'll get in by between 15 and 20 seats. Certainly not impossible, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to be surprised if that happens also living in New South Wales. We can see how an unpopular, inept, uh, softly corrupt government can be returned. Generally within federal politics, surprises don't happen that often. The last surprise election result that we received was back in 1993, and that was the GST election campaign that was won by Labor. But generally, surprise election results are few and far between in federal politics. We get a lot of surprise election results in state politics, 1999, when the Brax Labor government managed to squeeze in. 2001, when the Jeff Gallup Labor government managed to scrape in as well. 2014, when the Jay Weatherall Labor government managed to scrape back into office. Anastasia Palaszczuk, back in 2015. There's a lot of surprising election results that occur at the state level, but very few happen on a federal level. The rules changed. Tony Abbott, shouldn't have won a landslide he shouldn't have won at all I, I thought that was a terrible election campaign but he did and won easily malcolm turnbull probably shouldn't have won scraped in by one seat i guess we could argue that the 2016 election result was surprising in itself like it wasn't a surprise that the liberal national coalition won that election but it was a surprise that they only won by the one seat and they actually lost 15 seats in the process i've lost my confidence in being able to and I can, I've been looking at the evidence, and all the evidence points towards 15 to 20 seats to Labor. They only need two, and things like the Liberal Party, thanks to the redistribution, have to make a net gain of five seats to maintain their position. 
thanks to a redistribution. And the Liberal Party have tried everything. Dirt, they've changed their leaders again and again and or twice. They've restructured, they've thrown all kinds of promises to all kinds of people and nothing seems to have worked. But the cynic in me is wondering that whether we're reverting to pre-2010 rules or if we're still on the chaos of the last nine years or so. So we have been discussing this over the past few minutes, but we've waited for this for three years. Our final predictions, what is the likely outcome on Saturday night? Minority Labor government, no mess in the Senate. I've got a different perspective on that. I'm following just what you said a few minutes ago, that there's probably going to be 20 seats that are exchanged. My feeling is that Labor should win this and they should be quite confident about maybe picking up around 15 seats. Now, no one wants to have egg on their face, as we found in 1999, 2001, 2004, 2015. I mentioned all of those state examples where surprise victories just came out of nowhere and that's what a surprise is it comes out of nowhere but there's just very little to suggest that there's something that might pop out of the box at the last minute and create some surprises now there are those clive palmer preferences that could create havoc up in queensland even if the liberal national party manages to hold all of its seats in queensland that will be a fine effort but there's other seats where it's likely to lose in victoria south australia New South Wales. There are no seats that it can lose in Tasmania because it hasn't got any down there. WA is likely to lose quite a few seats as well. So it's almost like they have to put a finger in all of these cracks in the walls. And sure, they can patch up the one in Queensland, but there's just too many leaks happening elsewhere. And I I think it's just too much of a tall order. Mathematically, it's difficult for them to pick up or gain a net result of three seats. Uh, collectively, they've been behind in the polls for three years. And as I, I did mention before, the polls don't mean everything, but they do mean something. It's going to be a tall order for the LNP to win on Saturday night. And I'm being, I guess, not pessimistic. If I'm after change, it's because the government has done nothing to deserve to win. And what's to not deserve to win? As I said The Senate is unpredictable, but it's always unpredictable. It could be that it's a Labor majority. I forget who's standing and who's not standing, and and I'll admit here I haven't done the analysis to see, you know, what are the likely figures. But the Liberal Party are helping Clive Palmer be elected to the Senate. They're not stopping One Nation being elected to the Senate. I'm not quite sure what they're doing with some of the other right-wing, further right-wing parties. All indications point to a rather large victory for Labor, but indications (laughs) aren't results. So that's it for this new Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find the program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.